0: Welcome to Unboard with Brian Hayward, Unplugged, Unscripted Board Leadership, a conversation between accomplished leaders that provides insight into how great organizations and effective leaders set a course, invest in others, and influence outcomes. Brian's guest, Mary Cameron, Mary's currently the principal for the Ozone Advisory Group, Chair of Habitat for Humanity International. Her work includes Instructor of Leadership at Northern Alberta Institute of Technology, Board and Chair of HR and Governance for Fortis Alberta, CEO of the Alberta Workers' Compensation Board, Vice President of Fortis Credit Union, and Director for Alta ML. Now, here's Brian Hayward. Hello, and thank you for being with me today and and sharing a conversation. This is our first conversation on the podcast. Like to stay, say, just right off the start, this is for for people that are mightly listening. This is uh, unplugged, unscripted. It's going to go wherever it's going to go. And um, but I'm delighted to be with you because you and I have had a couple of conversations, and I every time we talk, I go away feeling uh, energized and having learned something. So
1: Well, Brian, thank you for having me. I, too always enjoy our conversations. Uh, I always walk away knowing something I didn't know to begin with, but for sure, even more than that, thinking something that I didn't think before. So I'm looking forward to our conversation as well. Thank you.
0: Yeah, so you know, when we were organizing this, um you mentioned just in passing that you were um uh, going to be chair of Habitat for Humanities International starting I think in January, if I'm correct. Yes. Yes. So but either I'm having a, an uh, a, an an old timer's moment or uh and I've forgotten, but I don't know if I've if I've ever uh heard sort of what's the background how did you get involved with habitat for humanities just because you've been at the local level and then national and then and now international but was there a a seminal moment where you it's like boom i got to get involved with these these folks
1: Well, I blame a lot of the good things in my life on my friends. And a friend (laughs) called me and said, Mary, I need some help with a charity. Would you help? And of course, for a friend, you say yes. So I went and had lunch with her. And she said, I want you to be co-chair of the Women Build for Habitat. And I said, Tootie, that's more than a little favor. I've never been involved with Habitat. But of course, she asked. And so, Susan Green and I agreed to be co-chair. And that summer, we built a duplex with 1,200 volunteers. We had so much fun. And I was hooked. So, I got involved with Habitat at the local level. I ended up going on their board and chairing the local level Habitat for Humanity Edmonton. And then they nominated me to go on the Canada board and I ended up chairing Habitat for Humanity Canada. And then Canada recommended that I go on the international board. So I've been there for five years and now I'm chair elect for Habitat International.
0: So like when Trudy, you know uh, Judy, uh, when she asked you to do that, is it, you know, I've been on, on fundraising boards and, and, you know, there's always this whiff of, Oh, come and help us. But somewhere along the line, they also want you to write a check or kind of be a champion and go out, get other people to write checks. So was there some element to that uh, where you were going to be asked to be a fundraiser as well?
1: No, not formally, although I always know with charities, money is a big thing. So usually when I get involved with a charity, I know I should give not only my time, but my pocketbook as well. So it wasn't a stated expectation, but of course I did. I think the more desperate need was the leadership they needed in in the boardroom building the organization.
0: Was there like some kind of strategic crisis or, or, or you know, moment of time where they, they're reaching out and saying, we need somebody like Mary? Or, or...
1: <laughs> well, I, th- I think they were looking for a woman. But at, at the time when Susan and I got involved, Habitat Edmonton was building maybe one or two homes a year. And we put um, Habitat on the map in Edmonton. It was a slow summer and all these women wearing pink hats on a construction site. It's a (laughs) great news story. So we had media every single day. They were bringing us coffee and donuts on the build site and the momentum just built. So Habitat in Edmonton became a thing. And then we did a strategic retreat after they invited Susan Green and I to the board And we said, is one or two houses a year enough? You know, is there enough impact? And collectively, the management and the board said, why don't we set this audacious goal of 100 homes in the northern Alberta region? And for every home we build locally, we're going to build one internationally. And more than that, we're going to become a voice for affordable housing. So the summary of our goal was 100, 100 and more. And for years, Edmonton became a leading affiliate across Canada because of that audacious goal. We were building more and more homes than Calgary, Toronto, Winnipeg. We were the leader just because we broke through some of the barriers that were preventing us to build and having a true impact on affordable housing.
0: So, you know, thinking about being a chair, but, you know, being on a board as well, um, you know, you've been on, on boards of for profit companies and, and obviously uh, you know, with, with something like Habitat for Humanity, not for profit, significant one. Do you sort of operate differently, whether you're chair, or just, you know, you're in the meeting. I, I, I was thinking about my own experience. I was on the board of uh, the arthritis society chaired here in Manitoba and then when national board and my own sort of perspective would be is uh i actually am more tolerant of bad behavior <laughs> on not-for-profit boards because these people are there for a reason and you go somebody's being an idiot like i can't really impugn their motives uh for being there but whereas you know if it's like you've been on mining and lumber or whatever um, well i don't know do you operate differently
1: Oh, That's a great question, Brian. I don't think I do. Um, I I think that for me, if I'm associated with an organization, it's because I believe in its purpose. And if I believe in its purpose, the board should be created and designed and operated to make sure it's helping that organization achieve its purpose. And if the people aren't the right people, you have to move them either through their education or replacing them with people with the right skill sets. So in not-for profit how,
0: how do you get rid of somebody on a not-for-profit board? Because I've been in those situations where you just have somebody and you're going like, oh, they can't shut up or whatever, and and or they've got their own pet thing and and but maybe they write big checks or whatever too. And how do you get rid of somebody?
1: Well, it's really tricky. There's lots of different ways. Um, I know when we first joined Habitat, there were a lot of good people, but we were having bake sales in order to raise money to build houses. There's no way we're going to build 100 homes with bake sales. So, we needed a different skill set. So, we identified the skill set we needed. And then everyone took a look at it and said, you know what? I don't belong on this board. I can't help in that way, but I can still go and build on site or I can still do what I can to contribute. But most people will self-identify if there's a big gap identified, if you're doing it with intention. I think also, and this is a tough role for the chair, but the chair should sit down with every director and say, how are you contributing? Is it enough? Are we absolutely achieving our goal? And and if not, why not? What do you need in terms of your education, training, or materials? And if there is too big a gap, then I think mutually you agree they should probably be replaced.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, interesting as I was doing something the other day and somebody asked uh, on a webinar that, you know, how do I, what's the criteria of whether I should join a board or not? I said, well, it's real simple uh, to me, at least two things. Can you add value by being there, which is kind of what you're alluding to. And then the second one is, do you trust the people around you? Because if you don't trust people um, and you can't answer that definitively, uh, like Judge Judy, this is either a yes or a no, um, then you don't go. And and so I, I, it's less so in the a, in a not-for-profit not for world, I'm sure.
1: I think, too, how much... How much do you care? Because if you really care about the mission, you'll put up with a lot of things in order to make it happen. Yeah, and you'll yeah. work through even distrust to create the trust if you care enough. And so, do you care enough and do you have the time? Things that are worth it always take way more time than you think. And so, yeah, when yeah. I choose to go on a board, I make sure I've got more than enough time to do everything that's required to achieve it, to make a difference.
0: So, you go from being you know, Edmonton and then Canada. And then, and this is, you know, you and I had a brief conversation about this, but I'm fascinated. You go to international and you've got people from different countries and, and I, and now, you know, with, with virtual, we we've, we've not had the the, uh, luxury or benefit of being as much in person, but, Help me understand, like, what is it different with international in terms of, you know, like I've dealt with the Japanese. They like to be quiet sometimes, sometimes for for North Americans, for what we would consider to be an uncomfortable length of time. (laughs) (laughs) And and we want to fill the gap, right? And so how... Is is it that kind of thing, or or is it mostly people? Uh, talk to me about what that's like. That just a mix of people that's there.
1: Well, honestly, Brian, I'm I'm honored, but my goodness, I'm facing this task with some trepidation. It's um, 24 people. I'm the only Canadian wow. on that board. It's too big a board, but I am. More than a little unnerved to make sure we do hear from all the, the voices because we have different cultures, but you always have different personalities too. Those who like to jump in and get things done, those who like to stop and think and rethink. And we need all those voices. You know, the one thing I've learned is chair, uh, the best chairs are really good listeners. And listening for even for the voices that aren't speaking, and making sure that atmosphere is created so they're comfortable with it. And with different cultures, I realize probably like you, Brian, you see a problem and you jump in to solve it. Right? You've got a million <laughs> solutions, and just just give me the one that's going to work, and you move on. A lot of these cultures don't move quickly to solutions, and very appropriately, they move first to understand. And and I've learned that more. Don't always rush to the solution make sure I'm listening for what's not being said and, and maybe for a more complete understanding. So I'm, I'm still learning, uh, you know, those different cultures take different times to come to the table and, and we've changed the way our board meetings are structured to make sure we've got opportunities for different voices and different cultures to come into leadership positions.
0: Great. And the decision-making Sort of when, when you when you get through going to the consensus or finish line or we've agreed on this, is there less of it? You know, I I'm inclined to think of things like Robert's Rules moved second in as is sort of very Western, uh, Western European or whatever. Is there a different sort of? Um, way to the finish line? Uh, almost like Zen, the way. Is, is, it, is, it, is it different to, to just to get that get consensus as opposed to you know, like, okay, let's move through this agenda and vote on stuff?
1: Well, I think, I, I think there's an illusion of consensus often. So, everyone says yes, but you don't really have consensus. So, we've changed it. So, on strategic issues, we spend a lot of time and we bring them up through committees and we really make sure people not only are saying yes, but they believe it's the right thing to do. So, we're we're almost never on strategic issues, seeing it once only and then approving it. So, we work with it and we have different groups and we think different scenarios. On items that can just have votes, we do a consent agenda where we lump all these things that really have to have decisions, but they're not really controversial. And we do make, perhaps, Robert's rules on those. But on strategic or value-based issues, we don't go for a vote. We make sure that we can tell by the actions and comments around the room that people really think this is the right direction to pursue.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, it's… It- i I've, I've with everything that's been happening and recently with uh indigenous issues in Canada, um, and, and sort of being involved in sort of understanding how boards operate. I I, I I find myself wondering sometimes lately whether there's there's some methodologies and ways of getting together and having conversations. And it's probably a bit presumptuous on my part, but it seems to me that, you know, we as as sort of Caucasian Western people tend to have a way of doing things that's different. And maybe maybe there's I I think there's been a a tendency on the part of so-called governance experts to say, oh, we can help. You understand how to do boards and board agendas, whereas maybe I'm wondering. It's part of what I want to spend a bit of time on. Actually, this in the next number of months is, you know, are there models that are right here around us that we can learn from that will actually result in a a, you know less polarized uh, kind of environment because. You know, it's it's regardless of whether it's the United States, there's 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 a tendency, I think, to be in a more uh, that we're more polarized now and right and wrong um, than than is what we should be. But I'm waxing philosophical.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Brian, if you come up with some answers, write another book. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's more of an exploration because it's just a, it's, you know, when I when I wrote the book that I did, it was really an exploration of something that I hadn't I just hadn't been uh, there was nothing I could see that was around that, that gave me that exposure. So,
1: well, I'm looking our offices of Habitat are in Atlanta, Georgia, and they're concentrating in the states In the states we have eleven hundred affiliates. And so diversity, equity and inclusion is a big issue for us in that organization. But then when we take a look around the world, almost every single country has an issue with its indigenous population. And so for Habitat to move in and to address affordable housing, often race and ethnicity, and education and poverty are are huge issues fundamental to the provision of housing. And so we have to understand that. We have to make sure that we hear and understand the various barriers and voices around those discussions. And we're having a real challenging time with it. So we were actually, you know, to our roots, we started with blacks and whites working together to build homes together and they risked their lives to do so so yeah. right in our roots we were uh, believing that uh, the that housing should be provided regardless of race And yet today, we still are challenging within our organization and then within our operations around the world, how we make sure we are inclusive, how we make sure that we're reducing um, the opportunities for for racial differences to be barriers to access to housing.
0: Yeah, so here's, here's another one that sort of, and I may not articulate this well, but you know, one of the things that uh, we we encourage people to do, whether it's in, you know, management meetings, whatever kind of meeting is to be courageous, speak your mind, you know, mm-hmm. create a trusting environment, etc. cetera. And, and the, um, but we're also in this sort of, you know, for lack of a better word, cancel culture. <laughs> and where, you know, if you speak your mind, um, you you run the risk of being portrayed as as somebody that's intolerant. And, and I, I find myself um, in awkward situations, you know, with, let's say, just to, to put it out there in a controversial way, where I'm I'm in a room where with predominantly, let's say that over 50% are Caucasian women, that they're also um, between the age of fifty and sixty-four, and they're arguing vociferously that we need to do more to elevate women, <laughs> and and I I don't know what to do with that, um, because part of what I should be doing is being courageous and s- saying what I think, but then at the same time I'm going like I'm going to look like a complete idiot. I, I don't know if that makes any sense to you. How do you how do you you know deal with those? awkward situations. I don't know. Oh,
1: you and I have talked before, Brian, and I think courage is one of the key traits of a good director on a board. But it's so hard to know when you should be courageous. You know, many societies used to use ostracism You know, being banned from the tribe as the ultimate punishment that would lead to death. Studies have shown that if you disagree with the group, you have physiological changes going on in your brain and your body. It's not an easy thing to do. Particularly if you're on a board and these people were smart enough to invite you to the board. So you have respect for them. And then all of a sudden you you want to fit in. You want to fit in. (laughs) You want to fit in. And yet you're thinking there's something that needs to be said. And to say it in a way that you'll be heard is, is really challenging. But to find the courage to say it at all is so important. And, and it's something I look for when I'm looking for directors. I look for somebody that, not on every single issue, but when it's important, will find the courage to stand up, even if it means personal ostracization from the group.
0: Yeah, I, I actually had uh, a situation um, when with uh, was United Grain Growers at the time, and uh, and and it was it was like twelve angry men where there was one director who actually because and and what was strange because when I in in when I was writing my book I I thought about this situation because I lived it where they started it around the table sort of going from person to person to person next 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 and so this this uh individual his name's jim uh he basically jim was like number six or something like that and there had been there was a tide of there was a momentum the the sea was the tide was coming in on a decision and um i was the ceo at the time and um and it it was going against me big time and then he just looked up and he said just one sentence short and sweet still and he just he looked at me and he said i agree with brian mm-hmm. and and it triggered an hour-long conversation because he basically um he was he was violating that you got to fit in rule right. and 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 uh, you know i know another one of your your touchstones is humility and and so the, and i think sometimes there's a balance between humility which generally is seen as I'm kind of quiet, you know, I don't, I I don't blow my own horn too much, da, da, da. Um, but also being courageous and assertive. And I don't know if you have some thoughts about the, the dilemma between humility and being courageous.
1: Well, I think on the surface, they look as though they could be opposites, but actually I don't think so. For me, humility means knowing that other people have things to offer, that mine isn't the smartest voice, the most important voice in the room, to really understand I'm one of, as opposed to the one. And and to be a part of a group and and be able to listen to voices and respect those voices, that's the humility, that, that my experience is only mine and others is every bit as rich. The courageous isn't, I need to speak and I'm going to be bold. Sometimes it can be Isn't that interesting? When I looked at the same data, I had a different perspective. Now, that can be courageous, too. It doesn't sound like you're saying we've got to look at it differently. It's still providing respect for another's opinion, but it's suggesting there might be a different way of looking at it. So, I think you can um, sort of clothe courage sometimes in very acceptable clothes, And, and often that's required at a boardroom.
0: I think in pictures so you just uh, hit so there is a big takeaway for me. I'm clothed yes the clothing.
1: <laughs> well and I was in a <laughs> got this group of chairs that we get together and we had this one indigenous person we were sharing important lessons we'd learned. And he said, for me as a chair, I've learned to put down my shield. And I thought, isn't that interesting? And each board director around the table should also put down their shield, which means become a little vulnerable. So a little open and again, a little more humility to listen to other people's point of view without being defensive on it. And if you put down your shield, conversations can be trickier, but they can also lead you to places that have way more power and impact than if you've just walked in and and reasserted what you've always believed.
0: Yeah, well, so you talked about uh, the group of chairs, so it's just for chairs, and and, and that you've created, and and I've had the uh, the benefit to, to participate in one of the sessions. Um, what 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 led you to kind of like that's that's a piece of work that you did. Was there and back to like the Habitat for Humanity question? Is was there a seminal moment where you just sort of went? Uh, Eureka, I'm going to do this just for chairs sort of thing where I get these folks together that uh, have have varied and deep experience in in coordinating a conversation, really, as opposed to chairing a meeting.
1: Well, my my business partner, Darren Rawson, and I have this company, Ozone Advisory, and we specialize in governance when we're not actually being directors or chairs. and In dialogue with each other, we realized we were learning so much about how to be a better chair. So, we got together for a breakfast. A couple of people we knew who were chairs and said, what's your biggest challenge? What are your biggest learnings? And we all would go for breakfast at 7 and at 10 o'clock would still be there talking. And we thought there's something to this. And it wasn't to benefit others. It was to benefit us. So, I said, why don't I invite 12 chairs? And we make this regular. So, we came up with the first chair circle. And then we said, oh, there's so many more people. So, we came up with the second one. And this has built. We're we're not planning to make it any bigger than it is now. But we get together people by invitation and we share our experiences. We explore how we can become better so our boards can become better to elevate our organizations to achieve their purpose, be it not for profit or private company. All boards can add more value than they are. And it's, you know, the chair we know of almost nothing in Canada or the U.S., for that matter, where you can go and learn how to be a better chair. I mean, you can learn Robert's rules, but that really isn't an effective way to good governance. So, so we thought the best way to learn was from each other.
0: What's something that you can, since you started this, that you, you can say, yeah, that's something that I've learned by, by this experience of creating the the circle?
1: Throwing the circle. out the typical agenda. the the old
0: agenda wait a second i've got it in my book that you're supposed to have an agenda and it's got to have strategy and people and finance in it for at least 50 percent yeah
1: (laughs) well honestly brian you probably know this many organizations haven't changed their agenda for years yeah you know the, the, the items are all the same the numbers change but then people walk in and if the agenda looks the same, their thinking probably looks the same. They sit in their same chair. You know, the person on yeah. the right or the person on the left is the same. And it hasn't changed for years. You bring in a new person and, wow, everyone's watching that new person. But really, it's all the same. So, I've learned throw out those old agendas, change up the board book. The board book doesn't have to be 300 pages. It can be 30
0: yeah, there's an actually there was an article in the paper the other day where it's a death by PowerPoint. <laughs> I, some of the oh. best board meetings I, I think I've been in. Well, not just board meetings, because, you know, some of the people who probably might be listening to this. They're going, oh, well, yeah, but that's boards. That's not what I do. But I just think we we absolutely murder people with with materials now. And it, it's a bit of a dichotomy because you want people to be prepared and be have proper uh resources and statistics and whatnot when you come into meetings so that you can have an intelligent conversation but at the same time so many times you we're just rehashing the same you know food processed food it's like it goes up on the screen sure. and everybody's sort of, like the dog on the back of the of the uh, the dashboard or whatever in your car, just nodding, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so-
1: but if you were just sitting there listening and learning, you're not adding to the company. And and so I, I asked management, why do you give these presentations? And they said, well, frankly, it's because we don't think the directors have read the packages. So the, their fix is then to give us the material during the meeting, and I think the fix is make sure your directors read the material ahead of time, and you can you can absolutely enforce that rule, because if a director is bored or if management's bored, you're not going to come up with an interesting, important discussion. No one should be bored in a board meeting.
0: Yeah, I, I so I was I just did this uh, poll on LinkedIn where I threw out you know who's who's the worst of the worst. And, and whether it's a board meeting or, or others, is, is it the person that talks all the time? Is it the person that doesn't talk at all? Uh, is it the person who has got a strong, you know, radical opinion on everything? Or is it the person who's unprepared? And half, half of the votes that they got were on, on the unprepared. And, and it, it's one of those things. How do you deal with that?
1: But you, you see, I would say none of the above. If that's happening, the worst of the worst is your chair. Your chair hasn't done their job if they're letting someone come to the meeting unprepared, speaking too much or not speaking enough. And you know, you've you got to develop the culture and the trust in order for the chair to be able to use that power. But absolutely, the board should say, chair, we want you to make sure the dialogue is even. We want to make sure we live by our rules of engagement, which includes reading the package before we arrive. So yeah. to me, the chair isn't doing their job if those things happen in a boardroom. You
0: know, you're reminding me actually of something that in the, the YPO model that I've have been exposed to where, you know, there's forum groups that get together and share uh, business and personal stuff. But there are, there, the first step of any of these groups is to establish norms and write them down. And right. includes things like you know uh, you you you, you got to attend meetings, uh, you know, and even even you know it's interesting because I've been in a situation where you'll say, well, okay, if I miss one meeting, that's that's okay, but if I miss two, then that's a problem. And, and I go and but some people look at that as actually, uh, if you're a golfer, it's the mulligan. Oh well, I am entitled to miss one. <laughs> it's <laughs> wait a second here. It's not a free hall pass. This is actually, you know, you missed the meeting because, you know, your, your, your partner's having a baby or whatever, it's, you know, there's gotta be a bona fide that you just can't look at it and, 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 and look at those situations anyway.
1: Well, you know, I think Brian too, It's one of the reasons I'm an advocate for smaller boards. If you're one of 24, and you miss, you know, you you probably don't have that much of a contribution per meeting. If you're one of five and you're not there, you're really missed. So, I think board should be the smallest possible number to still have the skill sets to be effective. And people should care about missing those meetings. They should be interesting enough. Enough should happen that you don't want to miss one. So again, if you create the right culture and it's an exciting dynamic place that makes a difference, no one's going to want to miss one of those meetings.
0: Yeah, totally. So how are you going to initiate something as chair to get down from 24? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and You know, I, it's, it's a weird thing because I'm when you said it, I'm going, whoa, that's way too big. But then I'm going, well, this is an international board though. And, and, and I'm, you know, some of the things that I've come across – you know, Japanese boards, uh, you know, they have like 30 people on them and operate by, you know, high levels of consensus. Uh, and, and so is, are you going to miss something if you had it down to, say, 11? Some-
1: you know, I, I don't know what we're going to do because we're short of people from Africa. You know, one person can't represent Africa. Like I think one person, I'm the only one from Canada. I think it's light having one from Canada. But then we start to need more numbers. What yeah. we've done is we've put more work onto the committees, not decisions, but work. So they talk and we've got the strategic committees and the fiduciary committees where they really shape and work ideas. Um we're trying to make sure our executive committee, which I typically don't believe should exist. With an international board, you almost have to to shape the agendas. So, we're trying to make sure that we're paring down our get-together meetings to be really critical items of conversation that we need together. So, I'm not sure what the right number is going to be. We might need an additional foundation board. Yeah, But yeah. perhaps yeah. we can think of different ways of making sure everyone feels they can have input without reducing the size. I haven't jumped to that conclusion yet.
0: Yeah, I, I, I was uh, blessed to actually be on a board in South Africa for five years. And one of the big takeaways that I, I have still to this day is, you know, Africa is huge. And when you look at the demographics for the next 20 years, that's where population growth in the world is going to be. And but, you know, I, I became acquainted with The language of uh, the Africans, they they call Africa is basically, you know, that the sort of part that's sub Sahara, but it's not South Africa. And and and, and, but the other piece that's interesting, I I don't know how you tackle it, is uh, that one of the one of the management uh, senior executives is Swiss that was down there and he moved to South Africa. But he's bilingual because he's Swiss. He speaks French and he said, you know, the issue that a lot of people have in, because in South Africa, which is the driver of a lot of economies, they speak Afrikaans and English and a lot of the people, the areas where they're trying to do business are bilingual French and maybe a bit of English. So the language thing is, I, I, I just, I wonder how, how do you, how do you deal with that? I guess everybody must speak English coming in.
1: So far, everyone speaks English. We have several people where English is a second language, and they're so gracious about it, Um, but-
0: a lot of poor areas that you're trying to get at, probably that may not be the case.
1: No. So we, we have national councils as well, and we have national organizations that reach into their communities. So quite a few of those, I would say the majority of those aren't English. But I think for the International Board, we just don't have the infrastructure at this point to be operating in several languages. Yeah. So
0: um, just sort of um, we're, as we're rolling out of COVID, presumably, I was asking somebody the other day about this whole thing. that I think people are, are kind of trying to wrap their head around hybrid, not hybrid. Are we going to, how much virtual, what's, what's your thought on that?
1: Well, rolling out of COVID, I hope we haven't gone through this pain without learning. You know, so I've been really reflecting back what have I learned? Um, I've learned about the things I value and I've learned about the things that were just wasted, wasted time, wasted resources. So going forward, I've learned virtual meetings are fabulous. You can get through a lot of material very efficiently. Uh, It's great for information exchange, it's great for quick decision-making. What it's not good for is building relationships, having tougher conversations that need a lot of back and forth. Um, So when... What most of the boards I'm on, we've settled on a hybrid model that a lot of the committee meetings, a lot of the work that is perfunctory will be done by Zoom. But when we get together, which will likely be every other meeting, we'll all be in person and we'll spend way more time having dinners, doing team building sessions, having strategic sessions where we're really talking about gritty conversations where you need all forms of communication to make sure that you're really getting through. So I think with intentional Our meetings are
0: going to be designed differently. Yeah, yeah. what I what I came across the other day was actually an observation by a a good friend of mine uh, who's involved, been involved in lots of board like situations, but just he's great businessman. And he said, you know what? What we're finding because he's he's an international uh, executive as well. He said it's either one or the other. You can't mix having half the people in a room in person and half the people on a zoom screen because it it's he he said we've started looking at this and it creates kind of two different meetings in a way it's like there's people that are actually looking at each other's body language and 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 they tend to you know look at the and listen to the opinions of those that are in the room um So one one of the fixes, he said they were trying, I haven't talked to him since he he said, is that everybody uh, has to have a laptop in front of them that's open with the camera on. And when they speak, they actually should be speaking to the camera on the laptop in front of them. So that way, the people that are in on the Zoom session are actually get the impression at least that uh, they're, they're more involved in the meeting. But it is, I think it's going to be a tricky one. Uh,
1: so to that point, we had, I'm doing, um, as a board member, I'm leading a search for a CEO for one of my companies. And we had that same experience. We had four people in the boardroom and then three of us were attending by Zoom. And we said after, you must speak into the laptop. So we feel we're there, but we actually identified ourselves as the secondary participants So, we knew going in that we didn't really have the opportunity to ask as many questions. And if we did, we would feed it by text to one of the people who were in the room. What we also decided is to invest in better technology in our boardrooms. So, we've got the best there is to accommodate these Zoom meetings. Technology is way cheaper than the plane flight. So, we're going to do that.
0: Yeah, I I find it weird because I actually had a client a couple months ago, and and some of the people, um, you know, they're on the board and and we're having this conversation, but they they're dropping off, their video is terrible, and 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 uh, and they just essentially didn't have good technology. Now sometimes people, somebody's out in the boonies or wherever, and they're not going to have, you know, five G, but. You know, I, I think organizations need, I, I would agree with you, is a need to invest and make sure uh, that, that people, you know, we, we invest in, you know, progressive organization will invest in health and wellness programs, whatnot. You know, the difference between a crappy Wi-Fi connection and a really good one is probably $20, $30 a month or something like this. Well, I have
1: to tell you, Brian, we just had a, a Zoom tour of one of our plants in Romania. And the guy went on, he had a headset with a camera, and it was hands-free. So he could actually walk around the mill and talk to us. His hands were free so he could operate the material. And then he, he could actually you know, by voice, send things to print. And so he was absolutely giving us a real-time tour. I, I asked him later for that technology. And with one of the lumber plants I'm involved with, we bought three of them for our lumber plants. But this sort of technology, it can be really valuable. Like it was $2,500 European technology, but imagine yeah, what yeah. it would have cost us to have gone to visit the plant.
0: Totally. Well, and and even you know, uh, I'm I'm just thinking. Uh, I was involved with Princess Auto. They got fifty or, or, or uh, retail outlets across Canada. You know, just it, to be able, it, actually, the, you know, to be a virtual customer, even as a director, it's like it's for like, sure. You know, there's some. Yeah, I I can see that being a really interesting. Uh, technology that
1: so what have we learned through this? You know, there's things we've learned we can do better and See, I
0: always learn something when I talk with you. So that's my <laughs> takeaway.
1: Well I'll send you that technology. It, it's worth yeah. the investment. I,
0: I think that would be excellent. And um and and somewhere along the line uh this podcast will be out and uh so if somebody wants to email me and get the, the link, I will forward it to you.
1: Okay. Now I have a question for you, Brian. You wrote Uh-oh. this book. How huh? <laughs>
0: How did it change you? Uh, Well, actually, I was I was with playing golf yesterday. Uh, Oops, I shouldn't say (laughs) because I'm a terrible golfer, but I just enjoy being I was with with a friend of mine um, and and he was asking me, oh, how's sales going? And I go like, you know, I'm not. Of course, I'd like to sell a million books versus one. I said, what's actually happened? which is fascinating is, is I've actually uh, have a network that's been supplemented and conversations that never would have happened. So if I hadn't a re- read, uh, written rather, <laughs> and uh, believe me, I read the books <laughs> too many times, um, but I wouldn't met you. Um, I that's actually, too- I, I, and, and so I feel really, how has it changed me? I've learned stuff from you with respect to, sharing being listening more the you know your touchstones of which i resonate with me of wisdom courage uh humility and curiosity um and and so those are things not necessarily that they're new but i think some of the things that i had a gut feel about they've been validated by people that can articulate and actually um provide you know some context and and, and conversation uh and, and so make made me think yeah you know that, that gut feel i had on something is that was made more more sense than what i thought probably so the diversity of people i have actually um met this wonderful gentleman who i'm encouraging to write a book so maybe at some point in time he may listen to this baldash dylan who was actually the first RCMP officer to say, "I'm wearing my turban." I don't know if you've had an opportunity to meet Baldash. Uh, He's in the Lower Mainland of British Columbia, and but I would never have met him if it wasn't for writing the book. So it's not the sales and 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 that kind of stuff. It's the people and and the insight that um, that I think has been unexpected, because. You go into writing a book and it takes two years, and you and then you finish, and then you go into sort of next phase, which is, oh, I've got this book. What am I going to do with it? <laughs> like, I, everybody's supposed to be rushing to, to to buy it, and and but it's 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 the development of the awareness that in its in and of itself generates conversations that are way more valuable than the money. Way so more-
1: I have another question too. Yesterday I had coffee with somebody who was just moving in to be chair of a not-for-profit for for the first time. And he said, what advice do you have? What are the top three things? And and he was starting from really a a low level of experience. And I was overwhelmed with thinking the top three things. So I'm going to ask you, for somebody fairly new to being in chair, what are the top three pieces of advice you'd give them? Oh. Yes. (laughs) Uh,
0: You know – I, I i think you know it goes to some of the i'm not trying to steal your your magic there but the humility um actually i learned this from from my wife because <laughs> she's a psychotherapist but she came you know this uh, which i've included in some of the things i've i mean you know, put out wait why am, am I, I talking? Talking?
1: <laughs>
0: and and i think the you know the the I've said to you and others, you don't know what it's like to be a chair until you're actually in that seat. And it's exhausting. And I hate to admit it, but when I'm just a sort of, you know, regular journey person, director, every once in a while, I zone out. I look out the window. (laughs) I look at my phone under the desk very (laughs) and and, kind of, you know, um, daydream but you can't do that active listening is very very challenging so i i actually this sounds a little bit off topic but i think having a good sleep getting up i you know before you and i had this conversation i went for a half hour walk outside um because i want to have i want to have my game on and and so being rested and being prepared to uh stop the voice inside your head if there's a topic, should we eat, you know, pizza tonight or Chinese food? Uh, and you start processing, what am I going to have? Then you're actually not listening. You have to eliminate the voice in your head, the opinion voice in your head, and and turn on the the ears and the listening. And that is really, uh, it, I think, it's a learned skill, and and but one that you can do outside of meetings even.
1: You know, I, I I love that too. And in my rules of engagement, you know, you said establish that early, always for the first one. I like to say listen generously, which is the same way of stopping the opinion in your head from gaining momentum. You know, and developing it as you're listening. Listening's really key, isn't it?
0: Uh, absolutely. If you don't listen, uh, you know, I, I think for people that are in meetings that are participants, uh, you know, thinking through what you're going to say and, and, and all of that is, is important. You need to listen as well, but especially for the person that's co- – I hate calling it chairing because it it has a sort of a imperialistic condescending i am the chair i am the god <laughs> i will t- decide when we vote <laughs> and uh, but but you know it, it's essential for that person to to be mindful and look for body language and little clues of yeah. when somebody's not happy better to be spoken in the room than to be rumored and and create some problem Later on, because somebody's didn't didn't feel like they were heard,
1: so you've got be rested, you know, so you're you're ready yeah. listen, listen number three b um
0: you know this may seem a little bit off, but i I actually like trying to keep have have some fun because I think ah, people okay. and, and and because I think when people are really super serious, um the creative creativity drops. So I like to actually uh, have a bit of humor. So when, you know, I wrote my book, I, I'm going like, I can't just write it, you know, sorry, Richard LeBlanc. Uh, it, it's a very dry book. It's very thick. It's very expensive. And it's, it, it's kind of boring. <laughs> so I want to have fun. And because I think it actually loosens up creativity and, and new ways of looking at challenges or, mm-hmm. you know, whether problems or just opportunities.
1: I love that. You know, and I think so many people, Brian, um, think governance is boring. And, and you know, if they're having fun, maybe they're not doing it well. And I think you're right. You know, it should be a creative process, and it should be uncomfortable at times. A good meeting isn't one where you all walk out holding hands. You know, a <laughs> lot of it is... If, if you're having
0: fun, though, you're probably... If you're having fun, you're probably not sleeping. You're probably not daydreaming. Yeah, you're exactly. in that... You, yeah. So.
1: Yeah. No, that's great. You did better than I did on my three pieces. So I'm going to go calm (laughs) today. Three more here.
0: (laughs) Yep. Mark them down. Well, um, I, you know what, Uh, on the note of having fun, I will uh, say we should probably wrap this up and, this has been fun, so thank you very much, Mary. And uh, as always, a delight to talk with you. And I'm looking forward to the next uh, chair circle and having more conversations with you because I'm always learning.
1: Thank you so much, Brian. I'm always learning too. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day.
0: Unplugged, unscripted board leadership. This
1: is on board.